Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast. Your source for solutions-focused dialogue about race in America. With your host, Scott Speed. Hello, and welcome to the Race Haven Podcast. This is solutions-focused dialogue about race relations in America. My name is Dr. Scott Speed, and I am the facilitator of the dialogue. This is episode 19 of Race Haven, and today I am joined by my friend and co-host, John Costino. How are you doing today, John? I'm doing wonderful, Scott. And yourself, my friend? I am doing great, waiting and anticipating this dialogue now and uh, for, for the last week. And I'm glad that we have a chance to jump on and share uh, what we've been talking about uh, offline, online for our listeners to, you know, learn and give feedback and, you know, see what they can take away from this, this particular topic. So with that being said, today we're going to dialogue about a topic that John and I, as I just alluded to, have been having a very intense dialogue about for the past week. Uh, it revolves around my idea that as an activist, I have to continue to share examples of all the corruption within our criminal justice system and John's belief that we need to balance the negative corruption sharing uh, on social media in particular on our Race Haven uh, community dialogue page on Facebook. Uh, John believes that we need to, to balance uh, the negative with some positive from time to time in order to keep people engaged and energized to move forward with trying to improve this system. So that's what we're going to dialogue about today. We're going to share with you uh, pretty much a play-by-play and share our thoughts on how that all unfolded for the last week. But before we do that, I first want uh, to tell our listeners about how they can become patrons of the show. My goal is to have an entirely user-supported show free of advertisements. So I created a Patreon page so that our listeners can earn cool perks like a custom Race Haven t-shirt by supporting the ongoing improvement and quality of the show for as little as $1 a month. Please visit racehavenpodcast.com patron to see all the details. Now, before we explore our topic for today's show, I want to tell you why dialogue is greater than debate. In debate, there can only be one winner. In dialogue, participants work together towards collective solutions, win-wins. Each week, I will share with you, our listeners, a different example of how dialogue is greater than debate. So this week, I want to share with you uh, this particular um, example, and I think it's really um, relevant for the dialogue that John and I are going to have, because over the course of the last week, and with our intense dialogue that we've been having, I've had to continue to remind myself of these tenets. 
And that's this. Dialogue is collaborative. Multiple sides work together toward shared understanding. Debate, in contrast, is oppositional. Two opposing sides try to prove each other wrong. So here is our framework for authentic dialogue on this podcast. Number one, participants listen with a sense of curiosity and ask questions to uncover the underlying assumptions and beliefs behind someone's statements. Number two, participants are willing to communicate their thoughts openly and honestly while putting aside emotions, defensiveness, and a desire to be right. And number three, participants approach someone who sees a problem differently, not as an adversary, but as a colleague in common pursuit of better solutions. So welcome to the dialogue. John, are you ready? I sure am, buddy, and I'm smiling as you say that because we used every one of those tenants to the uh, nth degree this week. We certainly did, and I'm excited that we get a chance to uh, model that for our listeners today because we were certainly tested. Uh, John and I were were greatly tested this week, and we literally couldn't wait for the show uh, to, to, to continue the dialogue, so we had a few conversations offline, and Again, we were tested, and as I uh, wrote on our Facebook group, I am a work in progress, and I'm currently reading and continuing to read uh, the book on dialogue that I often share excerpts from uh, on the Facebook group. So with that being said, the way that the show, today's show is going to work, um, this, this intense dialogue that John and I have been having all revolved around a Facebook post on, in the Facebook community dialogue uh, Facebook page that I'm sorry, it's called the Race Haven Community Dialogue Facebook group uh, that was created in 2014, which was the genesis of this whole Race Haven movement. And John posted um, a video there with the following comment. And what I'm going to do with the following comments, and what I'm going to do is, John, I'm going to actually read your comment, and then I'm going to read the, the comments that came after, and as well as my comment. And we're just going to do a play-by-play of how we felt in the moment when we were commenting. And so that our listeners can get an idea of what sparked the, uh, the intense dialogue that we've been having, and then we'll expand on our thoughts and feelings and kind of maybe how our thoughts and feelings have, have evolved since uh, we started this probably a little bit over a week and a half ago. So with that being said, John posted a video that has been circulating around social media that shows uh, a group of uh, Black Lives Matter uh, activists in Kansas Uh, with a group of police officers in that same town, I believe it was Wichita, and the caption and and the information under the video basically said that uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, group, they were planning a protest in the city, and the leaders of the Black Lives Matter group and the police commissioner in that town or sheriff got together, and they said, you know what, I believe the sheriff suggested that instead of having this uh, protest, how about we come together and show the community that, yes, we support each other, okay? And what they ended up doing was having a, having a barbecue. And the video showed police officers dancing along with the Black Lives Matter protesters and their children and other community members. It was a beautiful video, and this, this is what John commented uh, when he posted this video. And then I'll have John share a little bit in more detail if he, wa- he wants to add to what was going through his mind when he posted this. So this is John's uh, statement. He said, I have been asked, why am I so confused about the Black Lives, about the message of Black Lives Matter? Or why am I having a hard time supporting Black Lives Matter? For the past few months, 
I have had many meaningful conversations with Dr. Scott Speed and Mr. Montoya Smith and have become more, much more aware of the original message and its intent. As we have witnessed with so many messages over the years, the media, as well as people with hidden agendas, do their best to alter the message and manipulate people's perception of what many times is now a complete departure from the original message. We have all witnessed so many negative posts, videos, and events here on Facebook. They have been portraying the Black Lives Matter movement and its message in a way that has created more confusion, negative feelings, and unnecessary debate. Here is one solution that should be accepted by those confused about the Black Lives Matter movement and those in strong support of it. Post positive, post positive examples of the movement in action. The following story clearly shows how and why the Black Lives Matter message can be heard, understood, and appreciated by everyone. If we want to make a positive change and, and impact our society in a way that creates a better today and tomorrow than we, ha than we have been experiencing, let's start sharing the positive stories instead of simply debating the negative ones. Successful solutions are not the absence of anger violent, and violence. They are formed in the presence of peace, love, and understanding. Here's one example of a positive and successful Black Lives Matter event that has already improved the local environment. We can all make a difference if we focus on the positive. Here is the story. Please read it before commenting on my message. I welcome all comments. So, John, do you, would you like to add anything before I jump into the uh, first couple of comments that were written under your post? No, honestly, I mean, that, that sums up exactly where I was when I posted it. And uh, rather than me jumping ahead, please feel free, because I, I like the way you've, uh, you've laid this out. Okay. So now, John posted that, and then the very first post was by Montoya Smith. And Montoya, who's uh, a member of and the founder of the Mental Dialogue Community, which is also a Facebook group and a podcast that he hosts every Saturday morning, um, he wrote this, very good approach, John. And then the second post was myself. I wrote, great story, John. I hope that we see more efforts like this around the country. And then I chimed in again with a, with a comment that ultimately sparked the intense dialogue that followed. And this was my comment. I understand the need for people to see good stories like this and events like this are very needed. As an activist, it is my role to, to quote unquote, keep them, excuse me, excuse me, my role to quote unquote, keep them honest by raising awareness of inequalities. And unfortunately that is done by highlighting the bad stuff. And until there are nationwide systemic changes, the bad stuff will continue to occur. I want people to know that activists are capable capable of both participating in and feeling good about solutions-oriented events and activities like this and speaking out against inequality and corruption when we see it. The analogy that I like to use is if I have a cancer in my liver, I don't want the doctor saying to me, but what about your lungs and heart? They are in great condition, so let's focus on the good organs. No, I'm freaking dying because my liver has cancer. Let's focus on fixing that, giving you and others some insight into the mindset of an activist. I hope it makes sense. So that was my, that was my comment. Now, just to add a little context to that, uh, I had decided 
some months ago because every day without fail, I continue to see negative stories like there's been a bunch this past week as well that I haven't even reshared uh, on Facebook, but negative stories of police officers killing uh, unarmed African-American people. And lately there's been stories popping up across my timeline of police officers killing uh, European American, unarmed European American citizens as well. And it's been a consistent theme since 2014 when I started the Race Haven Group. And I am so tired of that theme and seeing it. And then with me doing the background research to understand the systemic issues in, in the, at the level that I now understand them, and looking at the pushback of organizations like some of the police unions out there and the whole Blue Lives Matter push, um, what that said to me and what it showed to me, and my pers- from my perspective at least, is that there's a lack of ca- accountability and there's a lack of just owning up to, yes, we have a problem. And so for me, I made the decision long before John posted this, that I was no longer, because I used to, but I was no longer going to share any of the positive policing videos about police playing basketball in the community, things I love seeing, or police, you know, doing, you know, dancing at the barbecue like John shared. I personally decided I wasn't going to share anymore because I felt like those things were a distraction. And what those things did was lull people into believing, see, everything's okay. And it did not for in a heightened sense of awareness where they would continue to speak out and push for the necessary improvements beyond just a nice photo op or a video op. So that was a decision that I made. And the analogy that I used that I just gave about the, the doctor uh, is what I truly feel. And also from listening to other activists, I've heard similar analogies, and it makes sense to me. It resonates with me that we have such a huge problem, we cannot continue to pacify the masses and pacify people to make them feel good. We need to attack the problem. So I said that with good intentions and an understanding from a foundational level that I want to save lives. So that's why I took the stance. So I used this video that John posted as an opportunity to raise that awareness. And it was in, and here's the other thing I want to add for context. It was in the Race Haven group page. And the Race Haven group page is, is there for constructive and critical analysis, assessment, and dialogue. So I felt like it was a great opportunity for me to, you know, throw that in there. So at this time, you know, John uh, you know, chimed in. And I don't know if you want to jump in now, or if you want me to read your next comment, John, it kind of speaks to it. And then you want to, if you would like to elaborate, because I'm going to go all the way down through to what another group member said that you really took uh, issue with, but I'm not going to, you know, give that group member's name on, on air, but I'd like to know if you want to jump in now before I get to that. No, and in fact, as I have said to you offline, I think this is going to require, you know, more than one episode. So I'd rather you take the time to lay the foundation because I think it would be unfair to anybody listening to this podcast to wonder where did this come from if they didn't have the background. So please feel free. I'm glad that you've taken the time to, uh, you know, basically to script out the dialogue to set the stage. Okay. So then John commented, like I said, and I, I'm – paraphrasing here, I cut off the beginning that wasn't, I, I just, I'm just getting to the meat of his next comment. And what he said was, like I said in my post, I welcome all comments, but if anyone honestly thinks 
we still need to hear that there are corrupt police. My question is why? We have been reading and watching those stories to the point that everyone agrees there is corruption within the community, within the police community, and to focus on it further without bringing positive stories to the light as well is not solutions focused. It's problem focused. So then another group member chimed in and he said this, for me personally, feel quote unquote, feel good stories like those don't like those don't really move me. Isn't that what they're supposed to do? Get to know the folks in the community. So they, so they, so they deserve praise for simply being nice to their fellow man. Because the truth of the matter is that their behavior is not the norm. That behavior is not the norm in poor communities of color. It reminded me of 10 years ago when conservative media outlets kept complaining that there were no positive stories coming from Iraq. They reasoned that the liberal media should show more positive stories of soldiers building schools and hospitals. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, well, they wouldn't have to build those things if they hadn't blown it up in the first place. Thought applies here as well. Many cops abuse their authority, continually violate the constitutional rights of minorities, and even kill them. Then, many in that community form the group Black Lives Matter. And finally, cops hang out with them. Nice photo op, but I ain't buying it. Those same cops who hugged all those little brown kids will be harassing them 10 years from now. And then Montoya jumped in. He said, I sometimes post examples of good community policing on the Mental Dialogue page as well. I love examples like this, but unfortunately, the majority of people who deny that black and brown people are over-policed typically will use these examples to say, see, there are good cops, which delves us back into our either-or narrative. John Costino, you didn't do this, but unfortunately, this example is not progress on the biggest issue of simply acknowledging there is a problem of police brutality that exists. Can't fix a problem until it is first acknowledged. When that happens, these examples will be highlighted as progress, in my opinion. So then uh, what I did was, uh, John, I, what I expected at this point, because I didn't, um, I didn't bring your comments back in. Uh, so what I did was I have a couple of more comments from some other group members. But within this, this uh, framework of comments, John was commenting, basically uh, making a point. So, John, I would like at, at this point, before I go into the other uh, unnamed person and then Dr. Greeson's comment that I wanted to share as well, I'd like you to jump in and just share what you were feeling at this time, because what I sensed at this time from your comments is that this is when you got to the point where you were kind of feeling ticked off and you were, you were basically conveying that you were upset and you were frustrated with the responses and you were actually questioning at this stage uh, you know, are we really solutions focused or are we problem focused? Could you just add some context to what you were feeling at this point? Sure, absolutely. And, and the word is frustrating. And, and I, again, I preface it because I don't live in a vacuum. I live in reality and I'm not naive to solutions and problems. And I'm not naive to, you know, jumping into the middle of a, a very muddy situation. That's what I've done my whole life. So at this point, I reached out to you a number of times. I said, you know what, maybe I don't belong here. Maybe this is a place where we're just going to go out there and post negative. And, you know, if there's anything positive going on, we're going to nip it in the bud before anybody gets excited about it. And 
again, I, I'm not going to ever say that you or anyone is wrong for your feelings, but that doesn't mean I have to agree with them. And I'll just point out to you when you use that analogy, and I refrained from posting a lot of stuff because I didn't want my perspective to become fuel for the fire. It's already a very volatile situation, and, you know, I'll, I'll share it now. When, when you use the analogy of, you know, my kidneys are failing, you forget about how well my lungs and my heart are, I'll give you a different analogy on the same scenario. The doctor does get rid of the cancer in your whatever organ, but in the course of that, you develop a, um, an infection and you end up in the hospital for an extra, whatever, three weeks. And instead of being glad that the cancer's out, you're pissed off that you've got this infection that you didn't have when you went in. And the reason I use that as an example is where we're at right now, based on what you just read, as a 48-year-old white male who's not racist, who's not bigoted, who's not prejudiced, I'm here, as I've expressed on many occasions, I came in clueless and unaware. I came in far below the awareness of you and many of the listeners and many of the audience members and participants in Race Haven. But because I chose to learn, I chose to want to understand, I've made, I believe, tremendous progress in that awareness over the last few months, thanks to you, thanks to Montoya, and to many of the people that post, because when you do share things that I don't know, I don't defend my lack of awareness or my ignorance to it. I go, you know what, I didn't know that, and I learned it. And we've had a lot of really healthy dialogues uh, where I've thanked you for a lot of these things. But, you know, where I draw the line is if people want to say, look, there's a problem, and until the problem is fixed nationwide, we're not going to acknowledge or recognize, you know, any of these little attempts. That's the, the most insane thing I've ever heard. Because if you apply that same logic to anything, anything at all, nothing gets done. That's like saying to a child who's learning to walk, Jesus, you don't have any balance or coordination. What are you, what are you trying to do? Get back on your knees and crawl. We would never do that to a child. But, of course, they don't have the balance and coordination when they first attempt to get off their knees and walk. And the reason I use that example is it's, it's irresponsible and I'll use the word it's ignorant, to apply entire generalizations and labels to everyone. My point was, are there corrupt police? Absolutely. Does everyone acknowledge that there's police corruption? Absolutely. Have we seen to the nth degree ad nauseum videos that disgust everyone, white and black? Yes. So to actually say we need to keep posting only them, until it's fixed is ridiculous. My point was, here's a community that said enough is enough. We're not going to be like everyone else. And when that community decides we're going to do something differently, people want to criticize that and say that doesn't count. Then my question is, what the hell do you want? What do you need? If you think it's going to magically in some fairy tale happen nationwide at once, go back to Never Neverland. It's going to start somewhere. It's going to start with one community. It's going to start with one activist and one policeman, police chief, whatever, saying, not in our town. We're going to show people it's different here. And then once that one event turns into multiple events, turns into this is how we do it here, then and only then is it going to spread elsewhere. 
But again, if we're going to just dismiss the initial steps and the initial stages, then goodbye. It's never going to happen, and everything else that we want to talk about is a fantasy. So I'm going to shut up and let you have the, uh, the floor back. But again, it's, I use the analogy of anything that we attempt to do, you're going to suck at it first, and then you're going to struggle and get a little bit better, but you're still not going to be good, and you're going to have to work hard at it. I, I've told you, I was a triathlete. There's not a human on the planet that would have ever completed a marathon if they didn't accept it in the beginning, they wouldn't be able to do a 10K or even a 5K. And they were going to struggle, and they were going to have lousy form, and they were going to be out of breath and, and puke and feel sick. But if you're willing to fight through that and acknowledge, I stink before I'm good, and I'm good before I'm great, and I'm not going to be able to accomplish it until I put the time and the effort in, then nothing worth doing ever gets done. And that was my argument at this point that, you know, Jesus, does everyone here just want to talk about the negative? And if that's the case, then congratulations, you've taken a guy in me with the best of intentions, with the absolute most solutions-focused mindset, and said, this is not worth my time because I don't on purpose surround myself with people who choose only to focus on negative because you get what you think. You get what you, your mind focuses on. So back to you, Scott, but that sums up where I was at that point for sure. Okay. And <clears throat> so I want to, before I start elaborating on my thought process at this point, because, or let me just say at this point, when John shared those sentiments uh, with me, um, I was troubled by them. And I was having a hard time um, understanding John's stance. You know, his stance of, you know, it really, in our intense dialogue that we had across several medias, literally we were texting each other. We were in love with each other. Dialogue. I'm smiling as you say it because I want <laughs> people to understand we are the best of friends. We're brothers, but we're not always happy-go-lucky when it comes to stuff like this. So I, I want people to understand it's okay to be intense in your dialogue. Oh, absolutely. And it was intense. It, it, was, it was truly intense. And, you know, it, it, was, it was across multiple medias. Text message. Uh, we had a couple of phone calls. We had inbox messages on Facebook. And, I mean, we had to really try to get on the same page on this situation because – and we wanted to do the show – immediately and if we would have if we would have recorded this show about a week ago it would probably be a more intense show than it is now because i think both john and i have grown in our understanding of each other's stance but at this stage in the dialogue a week or so ago you know as john is stating what he's stating about feeling like you know you may lose someone who was um you know and i quote uh, i guess an ally is what the term is used in the activist world uh when people like john uh because of his majority status and everyone who's listening that is European American obviously make up 70% of the country and all the, a lot of the uh, societal ills uh, you can choose to opt out. Literally you could just choose to opt out and not pay attention because of your majority status. And with that being said, people who activists call allies are European American people who recognize their privilege, recognize that, yes, I don't have to pay attention to this. I could go live in suburbia of America and really not have to encounter all of these various social ills, especially if I, don't, if I choose not to watch the news. I don't have to think about it at all. 
But John is someone who's an ally, has chosen to jump in and try to understand and help be, uh, you know, a con- uh, you know, kind of a middleman in helping to spread the message and helping people become more aware of the issues that um, African-Americans are trying to bring to the forefront about how, yes, uh, things are still not equal the way they should be. So with that being said, John was basically saying, you know, as he just stated, you know, that he's thinking like, am I, what's the point of me being here if all you guys are going to do is rehash history, which is one of his comments that he said that really got under my skin because you guys know if you've listened to a bunch of the podcasts, I am a history buff. I love history. And I am one to post, you know, historical content all the time on Race Haven because I believe that you cannot understand, none of us can fully understand the present without historical perspective. So when John was posting comments like, if all we're going to do is have history lessons and all we're going to do is focus on all the negative and, and not focus on the positive, then what's the point? I felt like at that point in the dialogue, John had literally jumped to a state where he just wanted a microwave solution. And in my mind, what I was saying to John and what I was trying to convey to him is that, unfortunately, we have to go through the hard stuff. Unfortunately, we have to rehash and look at all the negative that has been done and that is continuing to be done. And I've been posting a lot in the last week about the next thing that I've been uncovering about what is continually happening uh, above and beyond the housing um, discrimination issues that I've been bringing to the forefront about a month ago. And I I, uh, helped John understand and others. Now I'm helping people understand something called the new Jim Crow about our mass incarceration um, system. So with me understanding and learning all these things and understanding, understanding the historical context of them, I, I realize that I cannot go forward unless I go back first. I have to understand how these things were um, instituted, how and why, because if we can get to the root causes, then we can, we can reverse it. So I was beginning to get frustrated because I felt like John just wanted cookie cutter. He did, I'm sorry, not cookie cutter, microwave solutions. He didn't want to roll his sleeves up and continue to do the work. I felt like he was feeling a little bit uh, fatigued. And let me say this, I empathized with him in the sense that I could sense that he was feeling fatigued because I've gotten there at times. I've gotten there at times where, and even, even today now, like there's certain things that come across my timeline that I don't repost and I don't even read. There's, there's plenty of stories of African-Americans being killed by police officers or other situations about the historical um, you know, oppression of African-American people that I don't even share. And some of it I don't even read because my heart and my mind can't handle all of it. And I need to take a break at times. So at this point, I was getting... Before you go forward, Okay, go ahead. uh, Yeah, because I I want to be clear that even though you felt that, on no level have I ever said, written, or even expressed to you that I don't acknowledge and recognize the importance of making sure the past is brought forward because it's what got me to where I'm at, having those dialogues. I've always stressed with capital letters that we have to balance it, that we can't have only past and only negative without bringing forward the signs of progress. I want to be clear for all the listeners because on no level, any point, have I said enough's enough, you can't do that, you shouldn't do that, there's no value in that. I've simply said at this point, there is enough awareness that we have to at least, if there is progress, acknowledge it. And that's all I wanted to interject here because 
I respect and appreciate the amount of time and effort you put forth, and I wouldn't have the awareness and understanding that I have if you hadn't both done the research and shared it with me. My point is we just can't focus only on that when there are other things that we have to acknowledge. So back to you, but I wanted to make that clear because it's not about I've had enough to do it this way, it's my way or the highway or any type of BS like that. I acknowledge and know that we have to continually do both, but the key word is both when there is something positive to talk about. Absolutely, and I appreciate that context. And what I, what I want to do and what I'm trying to do for our listener listeners is I want them to understand what was going through my mind while we were in the heat of it. Right. And then uh, I'm also going to share where I, where I currently stand, but I'm kind of holding off to where I currently stand. But in that moment, as I was thinking those things, um, I consistently, I want you guys to know that I went back and I read John's comment over and over again, because I wanted to make sure I wasn't missing something about his intent. And I wanted to really understand what he was trying to give, convey why, why he was so upset and what possibly was I missing or what had I said that could have been miscommunicated? Because at this point, it felt like John and I were having a serious miscommunication. So I want to jump to something that a, another group member said that John really took um, offense with. And at one point, John, in one of our last conversations, you brought this comment up to me again, and you were upset because you said that I supported this comment, and I remember that I did in the, in the comments. I said, yes, I support. I understand where he's coming from. And then when we spoke the last time, I, I didn't remember exactly what the comment said, so I didn't want to go any further, but I do remember supporting it. So now I brought that comment, and this is the last comment that that individual wrote. So he wrote the one that I, I shared before, and this is the last comment that he wrote, and this is the one that you, you seem to take particular offense to. So I want you to elaborate as to why after I read it. So the group member said this, for me personally, quote unquote, feel good stories like those don't really move me. Isn't that what, oh, I'm sorry, that's not the right one. I'm sorry, I went to the wrong slot. Hold on, let me go down. Okay, he said, these interactions have been going on in my city my entire life, well before social media, yet police abuse has actually worsened. Stop and frisk and police violence are way more prevalent today in my city than 30 years ago. We live in a hypersensitive world now where people have the most irrational fears. All you see night after night on the news is a black guy who robbed a store or killed someone. Then you'll read in the paper buried somewhere on page 20 that there were multiple robberies and murders that same night. Only the suspect's pics aren't posted and no mention of race. Well, we all know what that means. Despite actual crime statistics showing violent crime is actually significantly down, you never know it by watching the news, social media, or even the RNC. Yet again, violence from police has increased in recent years. So yes, for me, this is just a feel-good story. If it hasn't worked for decades, why would it work now? The only thing that will mend the relationship between cops and the black community is for cops to stop abusing their authority. I just don't understand why that's so hard to grasp. And when certain cops do get caught violating rights and even killing unarmed citizens, they have to be held accountable. Okay, so that was his final comment on the matter. So John, would you care to, to share uh, what you took, you know, what you took issue with uh, within that comment? 
it's just it's the generalization. I mean, it, it's every single person is free to have their own feelings, and feelings are never wrong. When we express our feelings is when we now cross a line. And more importantly, when you or I, in the role that we're in here, if you're just talking amongst your friends, you're just some guy named Scott, and I'm just some guy named John. But when we're posting as the hosts of the radio podcast or the facilitator of the dialogue, we have a different sense of responsibility. And it doesn't extend all the way to every person who posts, but it does to an extent. And my reason for for laying that as a foundation is when we make generalized statements on what we think and what we feel is where we cross the line into being almost irresponsible. And my point in that was I get that's his perspective, and I respect that that's his perspective, but it doesn't mean it's right, and it doesn't mean it deserves anyone to agree with it other than saying I understand how you feel, and I can understand you know, exactly what makes you feel that way. And then there's got to be a book. Well, it's just the overall message was a generalization. If we're going to talk about this is how it's been going on for 10 years and this is how it is with all cops, this is how it is with all people, it's just you can't use words that even insinuate all because it just, it doesn't move the needle the direction we want. If I chose to respond and act accordingly as that um, participant did, I could sit there and quote statistics that would do nothing except delay us ever finding a resolution. So my point to you when we did that was, you know, look, you can't even remotely agree with that without tempering it with, you know, some form of a, here's a different way to look at it or a different way to communicate it. Because again, if we're just going to toss hand grenades out there, we can do that all day, but we're never going to find a solution. We're never going to find even a remote middle ground. And if that's not the goal, then, again, we need to change the whole focus to this is all about the history of and the problems with, but we don't really give a rat crap about finding a solution. And that's why I took offense to it, because there was nothing in the message or in the response to the message, and it came on the heels complete except for a very brief mention from Montoya and an immediate brief mention with massive follow-up from you, ignorance to the message of, hey, here's a community doing it right. And so, yeah, in context, I was like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, maybe I should be posting all the negative stuff that's against Black Lives Matter to fuel the fire. And I didn't do it, but I could have. Because the whole purpose, Scott, of the initial message and then everything that I communicated from that point forward was even if that stupid video was made up, if it was freaking fake, here's my point. Isn't that what we're all shooting for anyway? Communities where we don't have dead African-American men and dead cops. Aren't we looking for communities where kids can go to a playground and play and not, A, be in fear of getting mugged or beaten up or shot or falsely arrested by cops. Isn't that what we're looking for? So even if that was fake BS, that still is what we should be shooting for. And my point then was to the members, well, what is it you want then? 
what, that, tell me what you want so we can start working towards that solution because if that's not your goal, what is your goal? And that's why I was getting frustrated because the goal just seemed to be let's just talk about some more negative stuff. Let's just keep pointing out what's wrong. And, again, no one's on race haven because they think the world is fantasy land. They're in race haven because they've already experienced some crap. They're already pissed off about it. It's a place to vent it, which I get, but, again, you, it becomes a cesspool if it's nothing but venting negative stuff without anything positive being A, contributed, and, and then B, supported. So, yes, at this point, I was like, you got to be kidding me. So we'll throw some negative stuff out there, and everybody will jump on. Yeah, me too, me too. It's just it's not a healthy way to find solutions. Back to you. So this is definitely uh, – this is, this is really interesting because – I feel like this this part of the of the dialogue is like a microcosm of society. And what I mean by that is like for you it's interesting because I'm really thinking hard about this. Because what I just read that this group member posted, you said that it was tossing out a hand grenade. What he posted landed with you in a way that you felt like it was divisive and it was all the negativity. And it was his quote unquote perspective, his negative perspective, to the point where you would say he tossed out a, a hand grenade. To, and also, you said he was overgeneralizing. Now, the thing well, is. In, in, the con- in the context of all the dialogue that had gone up to that point, yes. Okay. And the thing for me is when I read that, it doesn't land with me that way. And because this gentleman happens to be from the same city I'm from, and I know we went to the same high school, so I know him from high school, and I know where he's from. He probably knows where I'm from in terms of the part of the city. We're both from the inner city of Philly. When he writes, I know his words intuitively, and there's, I'm able to read between the lines. There's some context that is really hard to pick up with text-based communication, and this is what I often see happening a lot within social media and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to create Race Haven is so that we, it would be a place where people would have the patience to go deeper and to ask deeper questions and, and probe when someone writes something to, um, you know, ask to help, read, to help each other read between the lines and, 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 and translate the context that's missing. And within doing that, it gets very frustrating. And I understand that it's hard. Like some people, plenty of people have left Race Haven. Uh, the group, because it is hard to have that patience when something resonates with you in a negative way and at the same time is resonating with me in a very, a very um, affirmative way, that's a hard space to be in. And now I have to try to translate to you why this affirms me and you're trying to translate to me with me why this aggravates or frustrates you. And then it's a matter of are we both patient enough to work through it with each other? And oftentimes many group members aren't. And then there's plenty that do, and they stick around. And those are the ones who've been around since for two years plus. However, what I, what I sensed here, uh, this is the clear example of that. Because when, when this individual writes, um, that gives the analogy of how these interactions have gone on in his city his entire life, and they weren't being videotaped, but the, the abuse has actually gotten worse. And then he talks about stop and frisk, which is cr- criminal. And there's a lot of reports coming out with the Department of Justice is now starting to actually state that. Um, And the violence that's been going on recently is like, well, those picnics back then didn't help. So here's what I'm seeing here. And I want to say this. So here's what here's what 
I want you and the listeners to hear. So where you, and this is what I understand, and I don't know if you're going to agree with this, but this is how I see it. Where because of where you are and your understanding of these issues, because this was not something that was an issue for you growing up or in your community, it wasn't something you faced on the regular. So when you see a picnic in 2016 with police officers and community members interacting positively, you see it as that's one step in the right direction. But the individual who wrote this and me and other group members who chimed in, they see it as I've seen it before and it didn't improve anything. So what I had a hard time with is the fact is why you couldn't see that and understand that there was literally a gap in perception. And it seemed to me that you were more or less taking a stance like a hard line stance, a very hard line stance. And even though you acknowledge there's been issues and people have issues, it still seemed to me that you were taking a hard line stance that everyone needs to appreciate this, this act and accept it as a positive step in the right direction. And you had a problem that a lot of us just didn't see it that way. And then on the, flip side, and on the flip side, I say, and this individual and a lot of other people say, we've seen this before, and it's a pacifying act because it hasn't improved. We've seen it in real life for the last Wait, 20, that's 30 that's years. An assumption, though. That's no, an let, me, let me finish. That, that's a point. Go ahead. Let me, let me finish, and then I want you to jump back in. But, okay, but I'm, but I'm glad you said that because, no, it's – I don't know if you're saying it's an assumption that we've seen it because that's my, my point is this. No, we've actually no, seen you, it. We've, we've participated it, in these things. is not the same, though. I'm, I'm sorry. Say it again. I said, no, I'm agreeing and acknowledging that what you saw was real, but to apply that to every time anything is done in the future is just an assumption, which is wrong. Okay, elaborate on that because, because my point is this. My point is the gap in perception, and I felt like the hard line that you drew – and all of your communication for the remainder of the week is, it was, it was akin to the whole get over it type of mindset, even though you didn't say it. No, that's, the way it that's felt. an assumption. That's an assumption. It is. I'm acknowledging it point. is. I'm acknowledging that it is. It's an assumption, and I'm, I'm just telling you how it felt, right? I'm sure. not saying it's how you intended it to land, but I'm telling you how it felt. For someone who is African-American, who's dealt with all of these issues our entire lives, it's like we're trying to convey to you that that is on the road to redemption, on the road to uh, reconciliation. We, we're sorry, but that, that's not what I want to see. It's like I have higher expectations of society and the police force as paid public servants. I have higher expectations of them before they get my stamp of approval of progress. So go ahead. Well, again, and, and I'm glad you're phrasing it that way. So we all want better, including me. But we need to live in reality, not fantasy world, and acknowledge that progress begins with steps. The analogy is let's go down to a school where they're teaching kids how to walk, and every time they fall, go, see, we told you. You've been trying, and it didn't work. Like, you, you, we have to acknowledge I'm not saying that you or any other listener or participant is wrong for your feelings to say, I've seen this shit before and it's never, it's never helped. I get that. I'd be saying the same thing if I were from that community and experienced that. 
But here's where I did draw the line. You can't then say, therefore, I'm not going to give anyone else the chance to show me different. Because based upon that thinking, nothing will change. So now let's pretend, take the other side of it, that there are a bunch of cops who share your exact feelings, and they say, screw it. We're going to go out there, and we are going to make a difference. Well, how would you know they made a difference until they make a difference? And that difference is going to start with instead of stop and frisk, instead of unlawfully harassing, arresting, and worse, tasing and or shooting and killing someone, it's going to start with having positive community relations. And then here's my point on that. If these cops, and we can call them paid service, we can call them whatever you want, bending corrupt cops, I'm saying if there were cops trying to do it the right way, then where do we draw the line with giving them that chance? And my point is, if they decided they were going to go out there and do it the right way and they were going to start participating in positive aspects of the community and everyone in the community, even the good people, I'm not talking about criminals and thugs, I'm talking everyone in the community said, you know what, screw off, we've seen this crap before, it didn't work. If that's the attitude, do you really anticipate that they're going to keep that positive mindset and say, you know what, we understand there's 400 years of, of negative. They're going to say, no, I didn't do that. We're trying to fix that. We've moved the bad guys off the force. They've been let go. They're in prison, whatever. But if we're going to go ahead and apply our past experiences to this new event with new slash different participants, and we're just going to go ahead and take a crap all over that effort, then it is never going to work. And that was my whole frustration. If we're not going to acknowledge anything could be different and could be better, then it will never be different and better. And that's my frustration with that overall message and tone in the community of we've seen it before. No kidding. Go watch anything in the Genesis stages. It is ugly. It sucks. And I used it to the example of a child, because if you've ever been a parent and you've ever watched your kid, it, they're not coordinated and they fall and you better have padding. Otherwise, they're going to have bumps all over their forehead from going face first on the floor. But it doesn't so, mean you kick him and go, I'm getting rid of this kid because he doesn't function right. You're making assumptions now. When you said that it's, we're in the Genesis stages, you're making the assumption that there's actually some real progress or systemic changes being made, are you making an assumption about that? Or are you saying that you know and you're aware of some serious things that are being done to right wrongs outside of just dancing at a barbecue? Well, I'll say that the fact that at 48, I'm learning this stuff, that I'd say, yeah, it's in the genesis because I'm not an ignorant or an uneducated person. I'm pretty tied in. And it's now just coming to light because of social media and because individuals like yourself have chosen, and I'm going to be really clear with this word, to respectfully, professionally, and effectively communicate messages. You've managed to break through a lot of the nonsense and a lot of the clutter that prevents really important messages from getting through, Scott, and it's a compliment to you, and I've told you that over and over again. 
There are people that could take the same message you deliver and it doesn't land because of their, A, anger, frustration, all legitimate feelings, but those feelings color their delivery to the point where there's no one listening anymore. You've been extremely, extremely effective of that. So, yeah, I'm going to say the genesis because you've not, again, you're not a stupid guy. You're very intelligent. You're very articulate. But you now have resources that were not available before, including a social platform to share. So, yeah, I do believe we're in a genesis. Not that stuff didn't go on before, but there was not the opportunity to get a mass aware. Look at what we're doing right now. This didn't exist 15 years ago. Because of, of enhances, enhancements, I should say, in technology and the ability for an individual like yourself to actually get your hands, you know, you, you don't have the luxury 15, 20 years ago to have the knowledge that you have, not because of your age. Let's say that you're still the same age, but it's 20 years ago. You didn't have the same resources. You didn't have the same ability. So, yeah, we are in a gen- – because I don't think any of this is an accident. I don't think it's an accident that this information is now becoming available. I think this is the trickle-down effect of people 20, 15, 10, 5 years ago saying, I want to make this stuff available to the masses. We just didn't know their names, and they didn't have the platform for anybody to really know who they were. But none of this was by accident. None of this is happening by chance. The information that has been buried for hundreds of years that's now coming forward it's now available, it still requires somebody to care enough to hear about it, and it requires somebody to care enough to go research it, but we do have, so yeah, this is a genesis, and I look at it as a, as a microcosm with what we're doing on this podcast right now today to a macrocosm where there are people that now can research and learn and, and understand thanks to technology on a much larger scale. Back to you. Okay. I appreciate those um, that perspective. I appreciate that perspective because I wasn't thinking about it that way. So I'm so glad that you um, were able to share it that way. That's an awesome, awesome perspective. And um, yeah, I, so again, I appreciate it. And I'm sure some of our listeners uh, are able to take something away from that as well. So I want to share this next uh, comment that, I'm sorry, I want to reshare a comment within the one I just shared from this group member, because I think that, I, not I think, I know for a fact, that within activist communities, this is the bottom line. This is literally the bottom line for us. And I I have a feeling that, excuse me, I have a feeling that this is part of his uh, statement that really bugs you. So I'd like to go deeper into understanding so that we as uh, a community can understand both sides better. So this is what he wrote. And the only, and only is in capital letters, only thing that will mend the relationship between cops and the black community is for cops to stop abusing their authority. I just don't understand why that is so hard to grasp. So that was a part of the statement that you had an issue with. So for me, let me just say, before you jump in, I want to say, say how that resonates with me. And I want you to share why that may have bothered you so we can go deeper. So our listeners can hear this exchange. So for me, that resonates with me because I believe that a hard line statement like that really gets rid of all the clutter because so many people have been distracted with, with a name called black lives matter means, and then all lives matter and blue lives matter and all these various things that have become a distraction from the bottom line. 
And the bottom line is this. The only thing that will mend the relationship between cops and the black community is for cops to stop abusing their authority. So when I hear that, I'm like, uh, pretty much, that's a fair statement. And speaking as someone, again, to add context, when I read something like this, this is what goes through my mind. I remember being a young African-American man in West Philly driving or riding in the car with some of my friends right all across City Line Avenue near St. Joseph's University where you attended college, John. We would go across St. Joseph's University into the suburbs. We would leave. We were on the edge of the city in West Philly, and we would drive over into the suburbs to go play basketball in Narber and or Lower Marion. And it would be a car full of young African-American men. And uh, on several occasions on that trek, which was a routine for us, we would get pulled over by the police for no reason, just because we were a group of African-American youth driving through a predominantly um, affluent European-American neighborhood. And those things stick with me. What also sticks with me is as an adult, when I moved to Georgia, uh, one town over from the town I live in, I was pulled over by a police officer because I had Pennsylvania tags and I hadn't changed my tags to Georgia tags yet. And by law, he was lawfully in the, in, in the right to say that um, I need to change my tags over within a certain amount of time of moving here. And I, I didn't get that done. So he had my car impounded and left me stranded on the side of the road. Now, here's the thing. I'm, I'm a very respectful person. I don't have, I'm not, I didn't have an attitude because when I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I'll admit it when I'm wrong. And I did that in that situation. However, I am an adult and the way that this older European American police officer spoke to me and treated me like I was a hardened criminal. It hurt my feelings. If I could just be candid, it hurt my feelings. And it enraged me because as a grown person, you expect to be treated with a certain amount of tact and a certain amount of respect. And I remember saying to that police officer, you don't have to speak to me that way. I am complying with everything you said. And the older African-American tow truck driver warned me to shut up because he didn't want anything bad to happen to me. And I'm actually getting upset telling this story right now and getting a little emotional. So am because, I, because it's unacceptable. I don't, I don't think there's any positive. And, and I'll address it. Please continue. But I'm just as sick hearing it as you are. So, you know, with, with telling that, with, with reliving those things and, and telling that story, you know, I, I just, again, so when I hear the word or when I read the words, the only thing that will mend the relationship between cops and the black community is for police to stop abusing their authority. It resonates with me, and I hear it differently than when you say he, lent, he, he threw out a hand grenade, and that's where the rub came in, and that's where you were frustrated from your end, and I'm frustrated from my end, and it's because we have completely different you know, 
perspectives and I under and I understand that. And that's why you and I had several, and I want our listeners to know we had several exchanges over the last week and a half about this because we are both solutions oriented and we both believe in dialogue. We were willing to hang in there when other people, the communication would break down. I truly wanted to understand John's perspective. And I believe that John truly wanted to understand mine, but I want you now, John, to just share how that particular statement landed with you and why the same way I shared how it landed with me and why. Absolutely. And I'll share something that you probably are not even aware of, but before we get to that, no, I want to reiterate, if I had been sitting in the car with you when that happened in Georgia, I probably would have been the one getting arrested because I would have been pissed off, and here's why I would have been pissed off. To watch an, an older, and I'll just throw it out there, whether he was prejudiced, bigoted, or fat, you know, flat-out racist white cop hassling you as my friend who I know is respectful to authority, I'd have been the one getting arrested because I'd have been saying, you're the type of blank that makes the race relations as tense as they are. And he'd have been looking at me, and he'd have been hearing me mouth off, and I'm telling you, I probably would have been the one going away in cuffs, not you, because that's how much that pisses me off. Because anybody, regardless of their, their race, if you're creating the problem, and I'm sitting here watching, here's Scott, respectful, you know, not a problem, being hassled, you then have every right as a human being with emotions to then at some point in the future take that out on someone else, which is what we're discussing now, that didn't do anything to hassle. And that's that domino effect that I'm trying so hard to, to not prevent because it's already in motion, but to stop, to remove enough dominoes that when they fall, they don't hit anyone else. That being said, taking the comments you, you made, I'm going to go all the way back to the same freaking street that you're talking about because you know that St. Joseph's area, right? Yes, sir. Okay, you know 54th Street? I know it very well. I grew up on 54th and Wendell. Okay. Well, you know that street that bumps right up against St. Joseph's Main Gate. When I went to school there, I lived in the rugby house. I was one of the athletes that lived in the rugby house right outside of the main entrance to the St. Joseph's parking lot. So you know mm -hmm. those three houses right there? Yep. Okay, that was the war zone. And what I mean by that was we were outside of the protection of the security and the campus. And if you know that area, it's not a real safe place to be. Now, I want to put this in context, and, and hopefully this will really help your listeners understand how far I really work to never bring the generalizations in. I lived there my freshman year at St. Joe's back in 1986, and we had 50, not 50, 38 guys, rugby players, so not little guys, big guys that lived in that house, and between the three houses, there were over 55 athletes because there was uh, baseball players and track on the other side of us. There was three houses there. We, on a weekly basis, Scott, had people breaking into our house and stealing crap. And I want this to be in perspective. These were not houses that no one was in. At any given time, there was a dozen or so male athletes, so not little nerds, not little computer nerds, 
male athletes in there, and not once was it a white person that broke into that house, basically terrorized and stole stuff. So understand the psyche. On the other side of that coin that you just provided, which is wrong, for you to be hassled, you know, going into Lower Marion or whatever, living in that house, we literally, it wasn't even keeping the doors locked because they would get kicked in sometimes. So my point I'm trying to make is the generalizations could fly on both sides. I could carry that image and that experience forward and apply it anytime I saw any African-American that even remotely reminded me of that. And I don't do it on purpose because it's wrong to do. So my point in sharing that with you is that's why I absolutely fight and defend as hard as possible against anyone just applying broad generalizations based on their feelings and their experiences. Because if I need to, I can pull that stuff out of my pocket and say, how do you explain this then? If we're going to have that line of thinking be okay, then I personally am justified in judging anyone I want because we had it happen repeatedly. We were taunted. There would be, you know, I won't call them gangs because there weren't gangs, but clusters of African-American men that would literally be 20 yards away from our house challenging us, taunting us to come out of the house because they wanted to beat the crap out of the college boys and then go take our stuff. So understand same area that you're talking about, same area that he's referring to, um, I was happy to see a cop car roll past our house once in a while. Not because I wanted someone to be hassled unfairly or unjustly, but it kind of kept us a little bit safe. So my point is, I do have a different perspective, but I'm not ignorant. I'm not saying that corruption doesn't occur. I'm not saying that there isn't an extreme, extreme need to clean up people of authority. I've also shared privately with you that I've had real, real interaction with real corruption that's still going on, that's still not cleaned up. And I am European-American from a very affluent European-American family, and we're dealing with police corruption that goes as high up through the state of New Jersey into the DEA. I don't know if you did the research I asked you, but still ongoing today, blatant corruption that has been exposed but still has not been rectified. So I'm not somebody that sits here and defends cops or defends people of authority. I have as big a distrust of cops, of attorney generals of states, of people of authority, because I know about abuse of authority. But I won't allow it to color my judgment, pardon that pun, I don't mean it to sound but to, to influence my judgment that I am going to go out there and just apply my feelings and my experiences as a blanket statement of this is how it is and therefore this is how it's always going to be. Otherwise, what the hell? Then I would have no hope and there's no reason to care about anything. And then it just becomes, you know, let's just go take care of me. And you know personally, I have taught against that my entire career for the last three decades, including – I don't know if you remember, we used to do those movie calls, and we would really dig down in a very uh, positive way a lot of the issues that we're talking about here because we would do those, uh, those personal development trainings, and I would use movies that would really stir people, movies like uh, Men of Honor, movies like Remember the Titans, 
to point out this shit does go on and it did go on and it needs to be addressed and it needs to be fixed and we have to be better people than those in our past. I'm going to kick it back to you, but I really want you to speak to what I just shared because these were real experiences I had in the same neighborhood, but it was a different side of that experience because I was the white, rich college boy that was living where he shouldn't live, if that makes sense. I love the context. And I think that's what makes our show different. And it's the intentional, the reason why I was intentional about hoping that I would get someone like yourself to join me in this effort. Because now our listeners get to hear both sides of that coin. And it allows us also to step up a level and speak to systemic issues, which again, makes our show different. So let me go back to saying this. So yes, I'm very familiar with the area. I am one of those I'm one of the people that grew up in that quote unquote unsafe neighborhood that you felt that you lived in because you were outside of college campus. I literally could walk to St. Joe's from my house. In fact, we did all the time. We would go to Larry's. That's, that was our cheap neighborhood cheesesteak place. Um, exactly. That's where we went every night. So with that being said, and also the funny thing for our listeners, I want our listeners to know this. So, and again, it's just for, to give some context about perspective. So because John grew up, um, you know, in an affluent area in New Jersey, when he came over to attend St. Joseph's in West Philadelphia, right on the edge of West Philadelphia, at the very end, before you go into the suburbs, uh, that neighborhood there that I grew up in was called Winfield. And I want everyone to know something that Winfield has trees, lawns, and everything in front of their homes. And most people that live in the heart of West Philly, they view, excuse me, they view those of us who grew up in Winfield as growing up in like the, the rich part of the African-American neighborhoods. And it's so funny now, it's a work, it was a working class to middle-class community of African-Americans primarily. Uh, however, to John, based on where he came from, it was a rough area. So I just think that's unique. And that, that just gives you some context and just how, how the various levels of uh, class that America has been built on, uh, how they all shape up and play out. Um, so with that it being also said, speaks to how, it also speaks to how the way we're treated completely changes our view. You felt comfortable there because right. there weren't people I was going to that next. threatening to beat the crap out of you when you walk out of your front door. You walked to Larry's. When we walked to Larry's, we had to go in a group of four or five, Scott. That's ridiculous. Oh, no doubt about it. And that's, that's where I was going next. So I wanted to speak to, so, <clears throat> so yeah. So while I can share with you guys how, as my group of friends, um, you know, and we were all good kids. Now, granted, yes, there were some kids who, who I know kids who did those things by online. I know the kids who went to St. Joe's to rob the kids, the, the college stu- students. I know them. Okay. Not necessarily when John was there because I was a lot younger at that time, but actually, no, I probably know them too. Cause they were the older guys in the neighborhood. So, so yeah, I know. And, and yes, I was going to tell you that. Yes, I absolutely had to worry about getting beat up because unfortunately that was just, you know, the way it went in, in the neighborhoods back in the day where, you know, you kind of always had to be ready to throw down. But, um, you know, so with that being said, um, where, well, just to finish the story about the context on how I, I interacted on so many levels is because I lived in, in West Philadelphia, Winfield neighborhood, but I attended school in the deeper part of West Philly called um, Mill Creek, where there were housing projects where my friends didn't have grass. They lived in projects. 
and they didn't have grass and trees in their neighborhood. They lived in the high rise or the low the low level uh, housing projects in the school that I attended from kindergarten to eighth grade, the first nine years of my life, all of my peers that I grew up with in my neighborhood, they went to school in the community where the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air grew up, Will Smith. That's Winfield. That's where he's from. And he went to school out there and, and they all went there. But I went to school in the middle of uh, Mill Creek was just a lot harder, rough and tumble community. And I saw the stuff I saw was even more ridiculous than what John is explaining and having to walk to the store with four people and what was relatively a safe community compared to where I actually went to school for the first nine years of my life and where my friends that I grew up with going to school lived. So it's just, again, just to provide that context. So, but as that group of kids driving out to the suburbs, we felt like we were being harassed by the cops because they kept stopping us. But what we didn't know is that John and his friends were calling them or the community members over across the, 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 you know, the main line, which is called City Avenue, um, they were calling the cops whenever young African-Americans rolled through because those were, unfortunately, um, and again, there's context and there's reasons, but those were the people that were kicking in doors and robbing people, et cetera. So we didn't see it. We didn't see that or understand that context. But as an adult, I can acknowledge and understand how John would say, great, I'm glad they're making sure these young guys are being stopped and don't have bad intentions. So another person and I were talking about this recently, and I don't know if it was you and I, John, but, you know, just saying how it's interesting because, yes, we all know, well, any intelligent person who's done some research, they understand that there's also a high uh, crime rate amongst poor European Americans as well. But the interesting thing is the reason why things play out in the media and the way they played out in John's life is because most of the poor, low-income uh, African-American people are concentrated in inner cities. And that's also where our universities that our affluent European-Americans attend, as well as the jobs where affluent European-Americans work, they see poor African-Americans most of the time, especially in the environment that John and I came up in the Northeast. So it's interesting because they didn't see, they weren't around poor European-Americans who are committing crimes and robbing people as well. So, you know, that dynamic also has to, you know, be factored in to this whole, you know, to this whole scenario. So I appreciate that context, John. And I, and I hear that loud and clear and I, I'm sure our listeners uh, hear that loud and clear as well. So unless you have something else, I want to kind of um, transition into some systemic um, variables that play into the dialogue that we're having. No, of course. So, this is where, you know, the, the historical uh, context comes in place. And I just gave a little with, um, you know, how African-Americans are concentrated in inner cities because of housing discrimination, because of redlining, uh, all the way up until 1968, um, where it was literally uh, legal for real estate agents to steer African-Americans to only certain communities, as well as um, they weren't able to obtain loans to move into certain areas. And uh, European-American homeowners were able to write into their deeds that their, excuse me, that their homes could not be sold to African-Americans. And it didn't take, it took 20 years. So even after 1968, it took a full 20 years for those things to really be implemented fully until 1998. And that's why we live in an America that's still mostly segregated. So with that being said, one of the things, so we're talking about this, this dialogue that we're having, and John is explaining you know, his side of things and, and his perspective, and I'm explaining my perspective. And I believe that where complex and nuance comes in 
is understanding that they're both relevant. They're both relevant and they're both right. And it's not about me trying to prove John wrong. And it's not about John trying to prove me wrong. I think what it ultimately is about is, like I always say, being solutions focused. And what I always like to do to provide context for solutions is provide historical context. So I just gave it to you in the redlining and the, the housing discrimination. I gave you some there. But another reason why we have such resentment in the African-American community towards police and another and, and the thing that a lot of Americans just don't realize is going on and they don't see is something that is being brought to the light by a civil rights attorney by the name of Michelle Alexander. And Michelle Alexander wrote a book called The New Jim Crow. And within this book called The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander basically uh, tells her story on this research that she did and where she realized that the, and, and the numbers are staggering. And I've posted a couple of videos recently on my personal Facebook page, the Race Haven podcast page, as well as the Race Haven Community Dialogue page. I've posted a couple of her speeches that she's giving around the country. And she's currently a professor at Ohio State University. So within this research, she shows how over the last 30 years, out, coming out of the civil rights movement and coming out of Jim Crow, our country transitioned because of the, the racism that this country was founded on and the lack of humanity that this country has shown towards uh, individuals of African descent, that the powers that be transitioned from slavery to the Jim Crow era, and then those fights were won. And then in the 70s, 70s and 80s, they transitioned to something called the Get Tough movement, Get Tough on Crime movement, as well as the War on Drugs. And this get tough movement and sentiment and this war on drugs was waged primarily overwhelmingly in poor African-American communities. And she shares statistics. One, she shares quotes about how one of Nixon's aides, uh, president Nixon's aides, he actually came out and spoke to how they formulated this strategy. And he's done several interviews sharing this strategy and then Reagan picked it up, and then with the war on drugs, and over the course of, of the, the next 30 years, millions upon millions of nonviolent drug offenders, let's ta- we're taking out the murders and all that stuff, right? But the nonviolent drug offenders that have had their lives and their freedoms taken away from them because of this war on drugs. And when someone gets a felony, based on the ways our laws are written, that person is basically has lost all their rights for the rest of their lives. So when they get out of jail, they can't get jobs. They can't even get housing because most of the rental properties won't allow you to rent a home if you have a felony. You can't get public assistance like food stamps and all these various social um, you know, things that help people in low-income communities get footing, you can't even vote when you have a felony. 
And oftentimes, these are teenagers that are getting picked up for selling a little weed or selling uh, cocaine or crack or whatever it was. And at the same time, jobs were being removed from these same communities. So she basically breaks down in a way more intelligent way than I can. I want to recommend everyone to either watch the videos and or get the book, The New Jim Crow. And it will share with you and show you how there was an intentional, intentional war raged, waged, waged against poor African-American people that literally decimated millions and millions of African-Americans' chances of upward mobility in this country over the last 30 years. And basically what we thought had ended after the civil rights movement, it remorphed. It remorphed. And now because of historical context and because of our ability to go back and do research and, and pull all these facts, Michelle Alexander was able to do that and now she's sharing that message with the world. And I, I've been consuming this information over the last week. I have the book. I haven't listened to it, but I've been watching her lectures. And it's hurtful. It's mind-blowing. And it's unacceptable. So I say all this to say that when, 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 when someone like John, who means well, and I know he means well, and millions of other Americans of European descent and African descent, because there's plenty of African-Americans who share similar sentiments or don't have the certain knowledge because all African-Americans are not the same. We didn't, always, we didn't all grow up in the same neighborhoods. We didn't all, all grow up poor. There are African-Americans who grew up in affluence, et cetera, who were shielded from these realities as well. They don't see these things that the people who lived in poverty know all too well. So I frame this whole story to say that because of the systems that, we've, that have been put forth in this country, where in, in some instances, not all, but in some instances, the same person that's kicking down the doors on college campuses or robbing college students is the same person that's feeling the pressure of feeding his family because he can't get a job because when he was 18 selling marijuana to the same college students, because they don't get stopped and frisks, even though in affluent European American communities, they do just as many drugs and sell just as many drugs, but they aren't being, their neighborhoods aren't occupied by the police forces the same way. Police aren't stopping and frisking them looking for those things. So they're not going to jail because the war on drugs wasn't waged in their communities. So those same college students who, who are buying the marijuana from the, the kids from my neighborhood, now that kid who got caught and got locked up and now has a felony and now has kids in his early 20s, and this is a hypothetical scenario, but this one is very real, can't get a job, can't integrate into society. So now all they can do is commit crimes. And, and now we have this vicious cycle that says 70% of people who go to prison end up back in prison. It's because society doesn't accept them back in and try to rehabilitate them and help them get on their feet. That's just one scenario, but it's also a real story. And I could go deeper and actually tell real stories, but I won't do that right now. But Michelle Alexander tells one of one, one kid who the cops actually planted the drugs on them because they had to meet their quota. And she tells a story about how these police out in Oakland were eventually investigated and they were all, this whole unit was found guilty of planting drugs 
on young African-American men and literally railroading their entire lives. And I have other stories like that, too. That, and those are the things that breed resentment. And those are the same things that I understand. So now you have young African-American people who are resentful of police officers because they know police are beating them up, planting drugs on them, railroading either their or their family member or their friend's lives. And now they see people like John on college campuses near their neighborhood and inner cities as targets. And they're like, well, forget them. They don't like us. They hate us. They only police us. Well, we're going to go take out our frustration and our resentment, and our anger on them. So now we have this vicious cycle that has literally been going on in our country forever. Why? Because we have corrupt systems. We have corrupt systems. So I'm going to shut up. John, I, I wanted to get you this video, and we'll have a chance to talk about this because I'm actually planning it for our next show. Because I want to extract this. I want to go to a higher level with our conversation, meaning, yes, we talked about the events-based uh, intense dialogue that we went through, and I thought that was important. But because I'm a systems thinker and because I've been trained to be a systems thinker, I'm able to take a 10,000-foot view of the issues. And when I take a 10,000-foot view of the issue, and I don't just get caught up in the issue in itself, I'm forced to look at all the various loops, feedback loops that play into the issue. And that's where I like to tell these stories about all the corruption that has led to this, this, you know, this, this back and forth, us against them scenario that we have in our country. And what I share with people, and the, the, the God's honest truth is this, it was designed to be this way. It I was literally because of greed, because of greed and the desire for power and greed for money, there's certain people who put most of us at odds and we continue to have all these negative feedback loops hurting our society, hurting the fabric of our society, and I'm sick of it. And Michelle Alexander is, is raising the awareness of the latest thing that is eroding the fabric of our society. And what she says that is so profound, John, and I know you'll love this. She said that we need a multi-ethnic, multi-racial human rights movement against these ills. So that we can finally not fix our not not fix it because to to fix something means that it was broken because it was once whole. Where the reality is this, it was never whole. Yeah, it was never whole. So I just spoke a lot. I took a lot of time. Thanks for being patient, John. But go ahead and jump back in. I think you understand where I'm going with this. Can you please jump in and add some context to what you think I'm trying to say? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, on the surface. Not only do I agree with it, I think you're almost making my point in what I was trying to communicate, and let's just say I did a poor job or, or failed to effectively communicate because, yeah, you know, I'll start with that last statement. I believe the only way it works is with a, you know, multicultural, interracial human race, and that was, you know, where my initial pushback and, and unawareness, I won't say frustration, because it wasn't a frustration, it was just a lack of understanding of why it had to be hardcore, capital letters, megaphones, Black Lives Matter. Because to me, again, in the unaware state that I began in, and with all of the divisiveness of the people you know, doing things under the banner of Black Lives Matter that are not necessarily part of Black Lives Matter, 
They've just created that divide because that's not that will not get to the message you just ended with, which is a unified human race doing it right. And uh, and you know again, going back to the example you gave, I can support it to the point, and then have to bring in that we do have to acknowledge additional you know components of it because it wasn't African American men trying to get money to feed their kids breaking in doors. It was 16, 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds that, you know, I'm going to say just wanted to stir crap, just wanted to fight, just wanted to go out there and, and, and whatever. That was – because there's a big difference, and I acknowledge what you were talking about. There is a very real problem, and I'll, I'll add to it, um, what you didn't mention, but I know you, you are aware of, is it's the cycle. Dad's in prison at 21. Right. Right. There's no kid in the house, or there's no dad in the house, and the kids are growing up without fathers. They're going to end up seeking that male role model somewhere, and it's going to end up coming from the street. So now it's the 16-year-old influencing the 11-year-old so that by the time the 11-year-old is 16, he's already a criminal because he doesn't know anything different. That was his whole, like, it's not even his fault at that point. That was, like, the uh, the the mimicking and the patterning that goes on in, in just life in general. We're going to seek to find something and, and model it. And so that's where the problem for me comes in. It's not that, you know, oh, these guys couldn't get jobs, so they decided we're going to go steal from college because they weren't the problem. It was their next generation that basically grew up fatherless, that grew up without a good example, that grew up, watch this, without any other hope. That has some, that's something that has been echoed. I don't know how true it is. You can speak to it, but I've heard it echoed from athletes and entertainers my whole life that I had two choices. I could get out from my, my career in sports or entertainment, or I could have had a life of crime in the streets. And the reality is, if that's, those are the choices, there's only a small amount that ever get out based on, you know, sports ability or, or entertainment talent or whatever. So what does it leave? It leaves, you know, joblessness. It leaves uh, hopelessness. And it leaves, you know, crime and violence. So I get that. And that's what I'm trying to speak to is we have to stop repeating patterns. We have to stop, you know, I call it the domino effect. When you pull enough dominoes away, when that last one falls, if it doesn't hit anymore, we now stop that, that domino effect from continuing. And that's where we've been. That's the pattern that we live in. That's what you've spoken to, um, and it's the cycle. Um, for me, again, it, it comes back to the bigger picture. And, see, the bigger picture, which you've alluded to, which uh, one of our, again, uh, participants alluded to in his, in his dialogue that you had mentioned earlier, the media has been as big a part of the problem as whatever, you know, sick pieces of garbage created this, you know, hundreds of years ago and said, let's separate them. Let's separate people. Let's keep them at odds. Let's keep them divided. Let's keep them angry. And that way we can control them. It's, it's the art of war. It's, it's divide and conquer. It's such a simple concept, but we're manipulated. And we've grown up, as you've pointed out, you know, extremely well, so many different times the way you articulate the different challenges that we face today, it was all systemic, it was all by design, and it was designed to keep us at odds. Now, fast forward to 
me. Why am I here? What is my point? Why, will I, why do I get so frustrated? Knowing that it was designed to keep us divided, designed to keep us pissed off and frustrated so that if we're angry about was designed to keep us angry, when do we say, all right, we're going to unify? And that's why I sent you that, that video that you posted because, as you know, I had to step away from the community dialogue because I just said, you know what, I can't deal with this anymore. I, I don't want to say the stuff that I want to say and then become part of the problem, but I can't participate in nothing but negative. But I sent you that video of the white cop tasing the white kids and the one ended up having, uh, I, I think he ended up with heart failure or whatever. I, I, Some brain damage. Brain damage. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it, I think it came out that, that one of those kids was actually the son of another cop. So there's real abusive power. That's like a, 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 a work-related issue coming out. We're just going to take it out on your family. But regardless of what, I'm, what happened there, my point is there's white-on-white cop abuse. And my whole point is when do we as decent human beings say enough's enough Corruption is the problem. Corruption is the focus. And to me, you acknowledged it. You even said there are times where Black Lives Matter will go protest the uh, abuse of police power and corruption on European-American victims. Well, that should not be the exception. It shouldn't be, look, Black Lives Matter cares about white people too. It's like that right there is my whole point, like, Holy crap, Black Lives Matter cares about white people too? No kidding. So why don't we stop the whole segregating of the lives matter and say corruption's bullshit and needs to be stopped and all I mean again, this is where you and I started down this path and, and thanks to you and Montoya, I understand, yeah, there's there's a message that started, but we've gotten to the point now where again, we're the goal has to be one or the other. If if the goal is to get everyone at one time nationwide to not be corrupt, that's never going to happen. But there's strength in numbers. And the more that they keep us with media messages and and falsifying information and uh, preventing certain stories from being told, they will keep whites against blacks, blacks against whites, and as long as there's enough division, corruption and, and police abusive power will always be there. And we know it's going to happen against whites and blacks, and we're going to be helpless to do anything about it. But at some point, as a human race, we're going to get pissed off enough. You're going to look at me and say, I don't actually have a problem with you. I'm going to look at you and say, I don't have a problem with you. They're the problem. And then we're going to unite. And then one day it will be white people and black people standing there without a banner that says white lives or black lives. And that's when will actually affect change. I mean, I've said this all along. When you look at the way our country is manipulated right now, we've got five to 600 people in Washington, D.C. that make every friggin' rule that controls 300 million people. They don't even adhere. They don't even hold themselves accountable to the stupid rules and laws they enact to control and manipulate us. But yet we as a stupid, ignorant society fight each other and we're going to do it again here in the next couple of months. In fact, you know, I won't do it here to the same degree, but I have been blasting the reps in my sales force 
saying, shut up about Hillary and Donald, shut up about liberal and conservative, shut up about Republican and Democrat. None of them care about you. They want to keep you divided. This election has pointed out just how corrupt and rigged inside Washington versus everyone else actually is. But we're so polarized and and we've become so shut down to truth that we can't even see it. And my point in saying that is the same thing has happened with the polarization of Black Lives Matter, where there can be very peaceful, effective protests that need to get that message out, that racism is not just history. It exists now. It's wrong. It needs to be removed. It needs to be erased. We need to replace it with something where everyone truly is equal. But until we can all come together on that, I just, I, it's, it's frustrating. And that's why I had to step away from the dialogue and stop posting because I don't want to be, I don't want to suddenly become part of the problem, Scott, that I'm talking about because we all have human emotions. We all have levels of frustration where we reach. And, and I've at least acknowledged now in my years and, and tremendous amount of work on myself that when I start to get there, I will shut down and walk away instead of pushing to that, you know, I'm now the angriest person in the room. So I'll kick it back over to you. But, yeah, we do have a lot of work to do, but I'm hopeful that we can do it if we can just get people to start focusing on we do have an opportunity if we take it. So what I want to do is just kind of wrap up um, our initial dialogue, intense dialogue, uh, was saying that I've had to do some deep, you know, thought and really checking myself to make sure that I really, really, you know, understood, you know, where you were coming from and make sure that I didn't get caught up in dealing with and being in an events-based mindset and wanting to kind of reset and follow my own teachings and, and the things I've been learning and get back to a systems perspective and focusing on what really matters because not to minimize the police um, barbecue video. Uh, and, and let me say, I, I, everything you wrote in your initial post with the video was, was spot on. It made all the sense in the world. And I agreed with it. And what I initially pointed out was that I can agree with your sentiment while also having mine. And I felt like there was nothing wrong with that in terms of, um, you know, pointing out what I pointed out about an activist approach and mindset. And I respect that you didn't agree with that. And I'm okay with that. And it's one of those situations where I feel like, you know, we can just agree to disagree without being disagreeable. As long I feel like as long as you understand, even if you may not agree with my reasoning, I just hope that you could walk away and say, yeah, I understand the reasoning. And that's, that's really all I push for and would want you to understand and take away from this whole two week um, dialogue. But with that being said, I also realize that we can't spend much time stuck in that because that, that, you know, in a way uh, is a distraction. And when I say that, I think it's good because it gave us an opportunity to dialogue and model for our listeners dialogue and hopefully take our listeners to it to next, the next step up on the ladder of consciousness and awareness about what we're really dealing with, because what we're really fighting are systems. 
because the systems are continuing to produce the negative feedback loop that we all get caught up in. And we all keep reacting to the negative feedback loops that manifest themselves in our society. And what I mean by that is, um, and it's a systems thinking term, when you see a police shooting or when you have people arguing um, or all the various other things or people getting robbed, et cetera, because people don't have jobs and people's parents have been taken out the house. So now you have teenagers who are going to making bad decisions. I never participated with anyone and my friends, the ones I hung with, none of them, you know, ever went out and did any, you know, robbing of any of the college students at St. Joe's. And we used to come over there and run on the track and walk through the campus and everything. But you know why? I can tell you this, every single one of the friends I have in my mind right now that I really spent a lot of time with the majority four out of every four out of five of them had a mom and a dad in the household. And the ones who were doing the bad things, they didn't have, have a dad in the household in most instances. And then we can speak to the reasons for that. So again, it's systemic reasons as to why those things are so prevalent in the most cases, not necessarily all, but in most cases. So I think as a whole, uh, I hope that our listeners will start to think about systemic things, start to do research and listen to uh, the, the, the academics and the researchers out there who are speaking to the systemic issues of poverty in our country, lack of jobs in our country, not the politicians and the news media, because they are playing us, as John just alluded to. And I hope that doesn't offend anyone, but I think at a certain level, we all know that that the politicians and the news media, that's entertainment, okay? It's, in, it's entertainment. And it's, it's almost like, like a soap opera, in a sense, in the way they entertain us. So we need to focus on the, the work that Michelle Alexander is doing. The police officer named Michael Wood, who's going around speaking against the things that he saw when he was a police officer and that he participated in, he speaks to the systems. So people who lived it, worked in it as attorneys, police officers, teachers, educators, academics, people who lived in it, who can speak at a higher level of what they're seeing, those are the people we need to listen to. Because they're the ones who are going to lead us and spark a level of consciousness in us all towards what, how we can play a role in the solutions. And we've obviously kind of transitioned automatically into our solution segment by having these, this, this level of conversation. Um, and that's, that's pretty much, you know, what I want to add to it. And so with saying all that, again, just to wrap up what you, where you and I were, John, um, again, I had to really do some soul searching to accept John's message and not get stuck in, no, I just want John to see it my way. And I want to encourage everyone who's African-American listening to this, or even European-American listening to this, that more so sides with my stance as an activist who's activist-minded in the sense that we have to continue to push the, the, the struggles and the negative things that are uh, happening so that we can wake people up and help them see our side. I think that it's important for us to also realize that there are real people out there like John, who's not an activist, but who does care, who says, you know what? There's nothing wrong with acknowledging the steps, the positive steps that are being made in this struggle. Because, yes, I'm willing to fight this struggle. I'm willing to use my voice to raise awareness, but I can't handle 
just negative, negative, negative. Can you please show me some signs that we're making progress so I can stick in there with you? I had to humble myself to hear that message. And I hear it loud and clear. And that's what I had to do. I had to go back and read John's post over and over and over to make sure that I'm really listening to him. And I'm practicing what I'm preaching and I'm practicing what I'm, what I'm learning as I continue to read about what authentic dialogue is. And a huge part of it is being able to listen together. I just posted something in the Race Haven group about listening together that I just read. Of listening together is so hard. You know, I, I, I say at the end of this show that we are all smarter when we think together, but we're also all smarter when we listen together. These are high-level cognitive traits and skills that we all have to develop, develop because they're not taught to us and they're not being modeled in society. It's one of the reasons why I abstain from politics because politics is volatile and it's divisive and it's modeling the wrong things, not working together towards solutions. It's about my way or your, or, or versus your way. So with John and I's situation over last week, it was a perfect chance for both he and I to model take our own advice, use what we've both been learning, and exercising it. So I'm saying to you here now, John, that I understand fully what you're conveying. I respect it, and I welcome it, positive things that are being shared. In addition, because you never said, let me say this, John never said in any of his posts, Scott or anyone else, don't show the historical perspective, don't show the, the wrongs that are being committed against uh, poor people and African-American people, primarily African-American people in society. He didn't say don't show those things, but he's also saying it's okay if we show positive things, even if it's just a small step. And I have to, to accept that that's something that he and I'm sure many other people need to stay engaged. Does that make sense, John? Do you ex- understand what I just conveyed? It, it, it does. And not only do I appreciate it and thank you for it, um, I really want to add one piece to this that that we kind of alluded to that I really want to stress for the listeners. And again, I I can't say enough because what you just articulated is so powerful. There was no win-loss. It wasn't like you were trying to convince me and I was trying to convince you. We both really worked so hard. And I use the word work to, to accept a different perspective, to listen, to understand, and to move closer to the center because neither one of us were, were stuck in a pride of authorship of our mindset. And what I want to validate that you just said that is powerful is I was to the point where I think I even said the words to you. I think it was on a call, not a text. I said, Scott, I don't want to bring anyone I know to this community dialogue. Do you remember that statement? Yes. That was the part that was breaking my heart more than anything. Because I had felt that for the past couple of months, we had been making progress. I was excited about not just meeting Montoya, but he and I developing an actual relationship as well. As you know, I spoke with him a few different times where it wasn't you and I speaking him. It actually became he and I speaking. So I felt like, you know what, I'm learning so much. I'm becoming so much more aware. We're going to be able to start moving the needle in the right direction and making a difference. And as you know, I took all of my business stuff off of my personal Facebook page, moved it to a business page so that I could now start introducing my very broad-based, just say, audience to race even and what we're doing. And it was breaking my heart. 
this past whatever it's been, seven, eight, nine, ten days, to the point where I'm thinking, my God, now I'm actually going to have to defend Race Haven to people that I was proud to introduce it to. And that was the part that was killing me because everybody that knows me, if they were to start engaging and reading, they would say to me, what the hell is wrong with you? You're the one that taught us don't surround yourself and swim in negativity or you'll drown. And that was the part that I was failing to effectively communicate that it's not about, like you said, you're not allowed to post the bad stuff. I encourage it. It needs to be brought to the surface, but there has to be some levels of of positive and and progress and hope. Otherwise, everyone says, what the hell? I'm tired of swimming. And the long and short of it is I felt like not only am I drowning, but I'm now telling everybody I know, hey, this is going to make a difference. And the reason I think that's so important is there's only positive that comes from every person in Race Haven bringing more people to this level of awareness. Because I can promise you, the people in my world, as you know, both European and African American and Asian American, they're of every uh, race and culture. And the bottom line is they don't have anything other than their own personal experiences. Coming to Race Haven and hearing from you and some of the experts, uh, amazing people that you've brought into Race Haven, it's only going to further, as we talked about, you know, a half hour ago, this genesis that we're in right now. Just imagine, Scott, think about the, the, the audience that I have through my career and how diverse it is. How awesome would it be if six months from now they all had, you know, the level of awareness that you've helped me get to, that you've helped that many people get to? Could you imagine how different things would be? Oh, that would be fantastic, amazing. I, I mean, it covers every city you know, every major city in our country, it touches most states. The point I'm trying to make is it would have nothing to do with John. I'm not doing it, but you and the awareness that you're creating and the environment that has developed, all I'm doing is I'm bringing a platform and a voice to it and, and a huge audience that has over years trusted me enough to say, hey, if John thinks it's good, we should check it out. That's that's what I wanted to be able to bring, not because I'm so smart, not because I'm so educated or aware, because I've made that abundantly clear and we'll do it again right now. I am on the upside of that learning curve where you have been for a while and many of the readers, but I don't want to then have to be embarrassed and then say to my contacts and my audience, you know what, you're right, this is not the environment that I want you and your brain in because it's mired in just negativity. I need there to be a, a light somewhere for people to be swimming towards in the dark. And that's the importance and the reason why it's important that we dialogue. It's important that you know we have diverse thoughts and ideas to challenge one another. And that's the reason why you know I again I always say I appreciate you being here um, and providing some balance um, and perspective because we can't go forward. Um, separated, you know, in, in my estimation, there's a lot of African-American people that I engage with that have a more or less, uh, we, we have to do this ourselves as an African-American community. And I'm always pushing, no, we need a collective inter, interracial, uh, multi-ethnic movement towards solutions and equality in this country. We need to fight together, work together, because, I mean, if we're only around people that think like us, we're, we're, we're going to be limited in so many ways. 
So I hope Agreed. that, you know, that our listeners can receive this message and they literally just witnessed in real live time, you and I coming together and coming to a uh, conclusion of really getting on the same page, um, you know, in terms of really understanding and even me to the point where I'm now for the first time through this call, I've actually decided in my mind that I'm going to, I'm going to start posting more of the positive things that cross my uh, page. I'm not going to be afraid to post the positive things for the fear that I had that it would distract people because now I have a better understanding, a more deeper understanding because I am able to engage with someone like yourself that that's what you need to stay engaged and to keep listening to me and following the message and staying engaged and, and, and feeling like there is hope. So I have to listen to that and I have to accept that. And I am going to start posting more positive things as they come across my timeline and my feed. And I encourage you and anyone else that's listening to this, that is a member of the race Haven community dialogue to share those positive stories as you come across them can empower and engage those among us who need that, who need that to fuel them. They may not be like me, where I will admit that for me, the negative stuff, and I, you know, I hate calling it negative because I feel like that, that's a disservice to what we're really dealing with. So I'll say, instead of saying the negative stuff, but the, the unfortunate realities of the things and the systems that we're dealing with and the way they've historically been constructed, the results of those things, I'm going to continue to share those things. And I'm going to continue to speak out against those things. But at the same time, I encourage anyone and everyone to, per, to post and share the positive efforts that are being made that are going into the direction of solving those problems so that we can have a more equal and just and safe, harmonious world for our children and our grandchildren. I'm going to support those things as well. And if you post them on Race Haven, and if I see someone speaking out against it, I will have your back. And John will have your back and we'll make sure that, you know, we'll lead by example. And I'm letting you know, I'm going to lead by example with that as well. Cause I know it's going to come and it's okay. Because the other thing that I want to share and we're, we, we only have about five minutes, but I also want to recognize, and I want you to recognize this as well, John, that I and many, and I'll say most African-Americans who are descended of uh, enslaved Africans are traumatized and we still hold and live through and with this this weight of trauma and sometimes and a lot of times that trauma you know manifests itself in a lot of the things that aren't necessarily healthy and some of the times you know and a lot of us we are we are at different stages with working through that trauma and I, I i because i love and trust and believe in every single last human being i believe in their best potential i hang in there and i dialogue with them and i'll go back and forth because and I'll be patient because I love you and I believe that we all can can reach our highest self. So we're going to experience that trauma on the Race Haven Community Dialogue page all the time. We have in the past and we'll continue to experience it. And we need our European American allies like yourself, John, to just have some empathy for that trauma. And I, I'm not saying it's not going to frustrate you. It is. It's going to frustrate you but I just want you to have some empathy and understand where it's coming from. So with that being said, because we're running out of time, John, I appreciate you. And I'm going to um, jump into uh, our outro for the day. And again, just a special thank you to you for joining 
uh, me and going through this very intense, deep uh, dialogue. And I hope our listeners got as much out of it as I did and that I hope you did, John. Please briefly tell our listeners how they can connect with you and and go ahead and share your, your closing thought. Sure. And I just, in closing, I want to say and and give you my word, don't ever have the fear that the message is going to get lost or buried again. That's the biggest challenge that I want to get across is that that message has resonated with me now. So it's no longer, you know, the secret that you have to keep putting forward, keep putting it forward, but do it without the fear of it ever getting buried again. And that's why I want to bring many European Americans to that level of awareness because then you'll then you'll realize okay we are getting that word out it is actually landing and it's not this hidden you know ugly secret that nobody wants to talk about anymore so I promise you I will always champion that and I will never ever let that get buried again Scott awesome so how can I users listeners uh, connect with you John uh, obviously, they can connect with me in the uh, in the Facebook world. John Costino is my uh, my Facebook page, and uh, my email address is real simple: John Costino at yahoo.com. My information's out there. I am always open to any and all comments, criticisms, and thoughts. And and Scott, I thank you. This has been a very painful but very effective process for both of us. And I just want to say on air, man, I love you, brother, and I appreciate the hard work that you're putting in because you are making a difference. I am living proof that you are making a difference. Thank you, and I love you too, John. For our listeners, be sure to subscribe to the Race Haven podcast on iPhone, excuse me, on the iPhone podcast app or Stitcher Radio app for Android so that you, so that you never miss the dialogue. And if you love this show, please leave us a review on the podcast app or Stitcher app. This will help us uh, gain more visibility for the show and ultimately more listeners. And we want to hear from you. You can email us your perspectives at solutions at racehavenpodcast.com. That's solutions at racehavenpodcast.com. And we will read a few of them on a future show from time to time. Please visit the Race Haven Podcast Facebook page or the Race Haven Community Dialogue page to engage and leave comments about this episode. You can also visit racehavenpodcast.com to leave comments and questions about today's show as well. So we have multiple places you can connect and engage. If today's show resonated with you, please, please, please share the podcast link on social media, text message, email, whatever and wherever you can share it with your friends, your family, and anyone who you care about so they can get engaged with us in this dialogue. A race haven, or let me say it better, a race haven is a safe place for people from from diverse ethnic, religious, cultural, and political backgrounds to bring their race-based perspectives, questions, assumptions, frustrations, and experiences to engage in thoughtful, honest dialogue in an effort to transcend race and unify America. Remember, we are all smarter when we think together. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast. Be sure to visit www.racehavenblog.com to comment and learn more.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.